This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The really obvious ones are things like um, food additives, um, food colorings, food preservatives, and pesticides on our fruits and vegetables, which are known to rip holes in the gut lining, affect the epithelial lining, create, you know, leaky gut. We underestimate the, the, the physiological impact of emotional states, mental emotional states that have not been successfully addressed. And I think for all that other stuff to work, you know, clean air, clean water, good food, all that sort of stuff, I would have to say emotional well-being is right up there. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists, and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank, and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season one of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at children's health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. We'll hear the inspirational stories of change from patients and their families along their healing journey. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this episode of Between Clinical Minds, we talk to dietitian Rocco DiVincenzo and Brisbane nutritionist Deborah Smart to get their take on intolerances and hear again from Emma Sutherland with another interesting case study. We spoke last episode about the prevalence of food allergy and atopy and addressed the importance of food introduction in the development of these conditions in children. Brisbane nutritionist Deborah Smart understands only too well the journey families face when their child has allergies through the journey with her own daughter. She was so, so severe. I mean, she had a first anaphylaxis at age 10 months old and subsequently was having regular anaphylaxis to tiny traces. She would, she would break out in hives if we kissed her after we'd had any tea or coffee because she was very anaphylactic to dairy milk. Um, if she sat in someone else's car seat, you know, ch- child who'd had Perhaps six months ago, spilled a bit of yogurt on it or something. She'd break out in hives all over her torso. <laughs> so I, I worked for years, I suppose, on um, with with her allergy specialists um, on increasing her tolerance to different foods. And you know, she'd be regularly allergy tested, and we'd try things that her her immune system had forgotten about that she'd previously been allergic to, and just try and work on improving her microbiome. I guess you've had first-hand experience. What is it like for a family um, who has a, a, you know, a member of the family who has such severe allergies as a young person? Well, it's quite frightening, of course, because, you know, you're told that um, there's all these things that people commonly have around in their environment that could be lethal to your child. And you have, you know, experiences of having to rush that child to hospital where they're not breathing or they've, um, they're having difficulty breathing. Um, it's frightening and you feel quite helpless and you feel very frustrated with the medical system because there's no medical solution <laughs> that um, actually, you know, there's no medical solution for allergies at this point in time. We don't understand why they happen. 
We don't understand why certain people develop them and others don't. Not fully anyway, even though we can start to extrapolate about what some of the you know, multiplicity of factors might be. All that medicine has to offer is management and not a cure. And I have found that extraordinarily frustrating over the years. And also, that it's a constantly changing area. So originally, I remember being told not to bother giving my daughter probiotics because there was no evidence at all for the benefit of their use. And, um, and just a few years later, the very same doctor is telling me that she'd just been to a conference in the UK about the importance of giving children with allergies probiotics because the microbiome is so altered in allergic children. So, but, you know, she at that point had no idea about specific strains or anything like that. She just was like, go out and find a probiotic. And at that point, there were no probiotics that were dairy-free back in those days. So um, I vividly remember once putting, topically applying a probiotic to her skin to see what would happen and her just swelling up and developing. So I'm glad glad I didn't give the thing to her orally um, because it had uh, traces of dairy in it. So... I was caught between a rock and a hard place for years and I mean it was part of what drove me into this field, um, wanting to help people like her with chronic medical conditions that medical science had no answer for. And of course, we, I guess as naturopathic practitioners, um, we have our own view on why there has been that increase that the ones that we always talk about, you know, this Western lifestyle, improved hygiene, birth process, you know, use of antibiotics, urbanisation, limited contact with nature, you know, all that kind of thing. But in, I guess as a practitioner and as a mother, um, do you have a personal kind of take on the causation of it? Absolutely. The biggest thing um, that seems to be clear in the research is is the, the microbiome and the changes to the microbiome that is occurring in our children based on all of the things that you've said. I think that, that toxicity obviously plays a role as well. So we, we are seeing, you know, much higher levels of environmental toxicity uh, affecting children. There's so many things that have changed, but really it's all speculation. I mean, microwaves, microwaving food has been a you know, for the last 20 or 30 years, we've had increases in, in, you know, I mean, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but increases in the vaccine schedule and the types of vaccines that are being given to children as well, um, even younger um, and, and crowding them all in together. And I've certainly seen cases where vaccines have triggered new allergies in, in people who have perhaps a genetic susceptibility. I do wonder too, you know, from the genetic point of view, I mean, I think that people in centuries gone by were more robust genetically because they um, were not dying that they were dying in childhood so anybody who was genetically a little weaker was dying dying before they reached maturity and the, the, the ability to then have children of their own so I think we're seeing people who are genetically weaker in the area of immune balance and allergies surviving into adulthood where they perhaps they wouldn't have in times gone by as well and you know that that so there's a multiplicity of factors um that are involved i think there was a study in the uk um a a while back which showed that the microbiome of children with allergies was virtually sterile compared to those that have no no allergies or a very robust immunity and that i think that really took my interest um there was actually a documentary done about it and comparing the microbiome of, of children with severe allergies to children growing up on farms and, and where there's a lot less, you know, of, of these children developing allergies where they've got animals um, around them all the time and they're perhaps being exposed to more types of microbes. 
that really interested me because when she was young, we did a we did a microbiome test on my daughter, and it did come back as though she was not registering bacteria of any level. So you know, all of those factors that you mentioned obviously have a have a role to play in that. Um, increased in cesarean births so that children are not being vaginally delivered and perhaps not um, establishing that initial intake of bacteria from the mother that starts off their microbiome. Um, we're seeing, you know, children being put on antibiotics from very early childhood um, and the increase of the use of antibiotics from wiping out their microbiome really young. So all of these things, I think, are contributing to that situation where we've got this massive increase of children, 35% exhibiting, you know, allergic issues with foods, but also an increase in the severity of allergies and the commonality of anaphylaxis. You know, it seems like everybody knows somebody who's had anaphylaxis these days, which when my grandmother was a child was probably unheard of. And I, I guess I'd like to go back a little bit to, to a comment that you made about um, when we were talking about causation, that was environmental toxicity. And in fact, nearly everybody I've interviewed, and I've interviewed probably 20 practitioners on different topics, everybody will say, will mention environmental toxicities. So I guess it's it's getting more and more, maybe we're testing more as well. But um, how do you see that fitting into this picture as a, as a causation? And what would be the biggest ones? So I think some of the biggest ones are the really obvious ones are things like food additives, food colourings, food preservatives, and pesticides on our fruits and vegetables, which are known to rip holes in the gut lining, affect the epithelial lining, create, you know, leaky gut. I think chemicals in our water supply are a problem as well. Um, Chlorine in tap water kills off the microbiome. Um, That's very obvious if you're somebody who ever makes water kefir or kombucha, that um, if you use tap water in those things, the your uh, organisms die and you can't make your fermented drink and that's happening in our gut all the time. So I think that we live in a modern world that is absolutely shredding holes in our gut lining, if you like, and allowing these protein peptides or food proteins to enter the bloodstream and trigger that immunological response. Yeah, and I mean, BPAs and plastics, um, you know, again, the whole thing of microwaving food and, and initially it was all about your microwave food in your plastic containers <laughs> and um, you're leaching chemicals into the food, um, altering the protein structure of the food. Microwaving actually alters the protein bonds in food. And I think that has an impact as well on uh, the ability of, of the gut lining to prevent those food particles from passing through. That kind of segs quite nicely into the next question around um, intolerances. And I guess the first thing to say is that, you know, orthodox medicine often won't recognise IgG. In fact, they don't see any evidence behind IgG testing. How do you feel or how do you operate as far as IgG testing is concerned? Do you do those tests for your patients when necessary? Okay, that's a really good question. Firstly, I want to clarify the difference between the word allergy and intolerance because I think there's a lot of confusion around that. I don't even think it gets there's, there's enough specificity around it in the medical world. I think both IgE and IgG-mediated um, sensitivities are really allergies Intolerances I think of as being more to do with food chemicals um, and substances that are not protein particles. 
So um, things like, you know, lectins or salicylates or anines or um, natural MSGs, for example, you might have intolerances to those chemicals and that's different to um, an IgE or an IgG-mediated sensitivity, which is to the protein in the food. Um, so I think the word intolerance is used very loosely around like how mild a reaction is. And so because IgG is more delayed, people will sometimes use that word intolerance for that. But it really is still, it's still an immune, an immunoglobulin-mediated reaction that you're seeing in those cases. I do agree that there isn't really much use for IgG testing in true allergy um, management. The reason for that is a lot of these allergic kids will actually test, even in blood tests for IgE, they'll test positive to virtually everything that they're currently eating. And that is because they, their immune systems are being primed. They do have a leaky gut. They are getting these peptides in the bloodstream and they are. So the usefulness of IgG, I think, is broader than just people with allergies, to be honest. I find it useful in um, other inflammatory chronic diseases and it's also just really a very useful measure of how bad the intestinal permeability has become because it does show how many food proteins are actually, you know, stimulating the immune system. So I've also seen, I guess, in my own experience that um, even if there are antigens in the blood, even if there are these, you know, um, immunoglobulins that you can see in, in, a, in a blood test, you've got to kind of really measure that against symptoms, against measurable symptoms that the patient is noticing to determine whether or not they can eat that food. Because otherwise some of these kids would literally be eating nothing <laughs> because they actually do have, um, you know, IgE or IgG mediated sensitivity to virtually everything they're eating if you just go by their blood tests. So that's why, um, you know, allergists will tend to do skin prick testing and dietary challenges to determine what the real problematic allergy is for the child. So that's my sort of stance on it. I don't really find IgG testing useful for truly allergic kids. I mean, the ones that are getting that, you know, anaphylaxis or, or hives or that immediate reaction, which you can see, you know, is more IgE mediated. But having said that, kids with asthma, kids with eczema and, and other autoimmune conditions that are where there's, you know, chronic immune um, reactivity or immune inflammation, then the IgG testing is quite useful, I think, because I think, you know, so often it does tell us what foods are triggering that sort of longer, slower type uh, inflammatory reaction. I do use it in, in cases that are where it's not your typical allergy that we're talking about. Looking at your version or your take on intolerance, how do you kind of approach those cases of intolerance? You were talking about lectins, you were talking about, you know, other aspects in the diet that you feel is more uh, indicative of an intolerance. How do you approach those cases? So obviously there's not really any test for intolerance in the, in the, in the way that I use that word. Um, there's not really tests for the food chemicals. So it really is about elimination diets. Having said that, I find it really fascinating that intolerances are really part of that package of overimmune sensitivity and even to an extent um, 
when it comes to intolerances, like chemical intolerances, there's there's a liver aspect to that as well. So there's liver toxicity, there's liver clearance issues, there's um, what we call you know multiple chemical sensitivity, which can happen as as part of those kinds of detox pathway issues. And it all ties in with this concept, I suppose, around you know systemic inflammation. So that if we can actually identify the actual protein um, allergies, if you like, both IgE and, and IgG mediated, um, which are a bit more hidden, reducing those and getting the immune system to sort of relax when you can you know, be specific about those from tests actually does seem to have an impact on the level of reactivity to the intolerances. So when allergies are being managed well and being avoided appropriately, I think a lot of times some of those chemical intolerances start to resolve, um, which is an interesting thing as well. So yes, to get back to your question, um, salicylates and amines are certain suspect, certainly suspects in certain types of symptoms. Salicylates, um, I tend to, you know, find they tend to cause like inflammatory skin reactions and things like that whereas amines it's more headaches and and those sorts of symptoms so it depends on what the person's exhibiting what you would support to eliminating but it's really elimination diets just putting them on you know the low salicylate amine type diet plan and then gradually bringing foods in to see where their tolerance level is at Rocco DiVincenzo is a highly respected consultant dietitian from Melbourne. He has a strong integrative functional nutritional and environmental medicine focus and has formal qualifications in this area. He does use IgG intolerance testing, but he does see a certain profile. Typically the story is, you know, 12 months ago, two years ago, I was, I was eating these foods, I had no problem. Now, every time I eat these foods, I get these types of reactions. Now, to me, one of the, the things that I try to do routinely is to um, explore this functional medicine matrix, which um, the Institute for Functional Medicine really encourages. And what that does is it gives us an opportunity to retell the patient's story, right? So you look at when did the problem start? What was going on before the problems began? You know, what, what were some of the potential antecedents? What were some of the potential triggering events? You know, what were some of the mediators and the perpetrators? I think that there's real value when undertaking a proper clinical assessment to really look at all that, look at all that sort of stuff. And so my, my personal belief is that, you know, particularly when there's, when there's a fair amount of stress involved, um, which, you know, stress is fairly ubiquitous in our culture, we're all affected by stress to, to various, uh, various degrees. And so as a consequence of the stress response, and often being in a hypercortisolemic state, the, the domino effect of that is that, as I said before, it can reduce stomach acid levels and it can then, as a consequence, make us more prone to low-grade infections. And I would have to say that the lowest common denominator here is that a lot of the people that I see who, who have food sensitivities and often have an autoimmune disease often have unresolved low-grade infections. And that's a tricky area because even with some of the functional testing that we have um, available, which you know a lot of the functional testing is great, um, it's not easy to be able to exactly identify, you know, which infections people have and where they are. So again, you've got to really rely on your clinical assessment to sort of guide you. But if I can speak from experience, that if we 
if we successfully start to address um, these low-grade infections, and this is generally in conjunction with GP, you know, integrative GP involvement, and you support digestive function and you do all the things that we know we need to do, people can really improve. I mean, I always, it's interesting, you know, there are certain GABA moments in one's life. And I remember many years ago, back in 1999, where I attended a, um, uh, it was a seminar, and this stuck with me ever since. And he said, you cannot improve a, a person's terrain until you reduce their infectious load. And for some reason, that's stuck with me over the last 20 years. And I, and I find that to be so true, that if, if you sort of know where to look and, and you do a proper assessment, you can usually um, identify the likely existence of these low-grade infections. And if you then treat them and then do all the other things that I've sort of mentioned, um, you can get some fairly outstanding outcomes. For Rocco Di Vincenzo, it's important to understand the link early on between food intolerances, low-grade infection, microbiome imbalance, and autoimmunity. Most of the people that that I see that, that have digestive dysfunction, so they'll they'll present with an IBS type presentation. You know, they'll have bloating, wind, um, intermittent constipation, diarrhea, etc. Um, they generally will have some low-grade infection within their gut right? More often than not, SIBO. And we understand, we recognize full well the link between um, gut dysfunction and microbial imbalance within the bowel um, and the potential development of autoimmunity. And, and within that context, if, if one undertakes some organic acid testing, for example, or if you undertake some uh, comprehensive digestive stool analyses, um, and of which there are many now that are really quite exceptional in terms of what they can measure, we can really start to identify some of those imbalances quite clearly. When, however, an autoimmune disease is allowed to progress, um, and let's, in the let's say we use an example of Hashimoto's, so Hashimoto's thyroiditis, well, we often find that you know, some of these, fecture, these infections are no, no, no longer necessarily in the bowel. They've now moved systemically because of the presence of increased intestinal permeability, etc. And they can potentially set up shop in a variety of places and notwithstanding also the thyroid. So we know that there's some evidence of the likely existence of Epstein-Barr virus as a potential driver. And so, again, being able to identify that when one works with a, with a, a GP, an integrative GP, you, know, you, can, you can ask for um, you know, EBV testing in terms of if there's been exposure and that'll either come back positive or negative in blood. Does that mean it's an active infection? I mean, as far as I'm aware, we don't know. And so it then becomes a process of, again, using the clinical assessment, you know, what the body is telling us, and then developing an appropriate intervention plan for that individual, which will include potentially you know, dietary manipulation, uh, antimicrobials if needed. And so you have to intervene at an individual level. It's, it's very difficult um, to have a sort of conveyor belt protocol that you then dispense to all these patients because you can have two people with Hashimoto's thyroiditis where their antecedents, triggering factors, etc. are different and you have to intervene at a, at, a, at a strategically individual level. Physiological stresses, uh, stressors is, is one part of it, isn't it? And it, they, in some cases, are easier for people to deal with, but the psychological stresses that people are under are often more difficult, aren't they? Um, in terms of maybe they're in a job that's stressful or the COVID situation is stressful, it's, sometimes it's more difficult. Would you agree? The psychological impact of the lockdowns 
I've argued for a long time has probably been far worse than the actual virus itself. Um, and if you look at the impact of the lockdown on the psychological state of kids, particularly a lot of the kids that I see that are significantly challenged. So we're talking about kids that are in special schools, such as kids with autism. I mean, the type of regression that we have seen is, is outstanding. And a lot of the, the, you know, the authorities don't sort of, I mean, I can understand their position because they've got to do something, but I don't think that they've really thought about the real consequences here. I mean, I've had kids where they've regressed so badly that it's taken them months to get back to where they were before, because these are kids that need the type of intervention that they were receiving at these special schools. And at home, they're not receiving those interventions. Parents are often ill-equipped to be able to, to truly cater for the needs of their children. And so the domino effect from a stress response um, has then ultimately really impacted the parents. And in some cases, it's resulted in the demise of the family in terms of, you know, the parents have split up. And so we, we, we don't think enough about, you know, the consequences of all these things, but absolutely right in terms of that these are things that we should be thinking about. You mentioned at the beginning of our talk today, uh, Rocco, that you were going to be discussing a condition that you believe is going to be on the increase uh, as moving forward. What is that? It's a condition that I've come across twice now in my, in, in my practice, and it's called um, ASIA, which is an acronym that stands for, it's an autoimmune sort of auto-inflammatory syndrome induced by adjuvants. It's otherwise known as, as, known as Schoenfeld's syndrome. So it's actually a relatively new, it's a new syndrome. And it's an autoimmune disorder that's been proposed by Israeli immunologist um, Yehuda Schoenfeld. And it was first proposed in 2011. Now, the diagnosis of Asia is, is based on sort of both major and minor criteria, but it encompasses generalized signs and symptoms such as you know, persistent fatigue, cognitive difficulties, neurological deficits, myalgias, arthralgias, dry mouth, etc. And it seems as though that this syndrome can be triggered by exposure to adjuvants. So we're talking about post-vaccination syndromes, which is quite topical right at the moment, but certainly we need to be on the lookout for the development of these types of symptoms fairly soon after the, the vaccination. But uh, macrophagic myofasciitis, Gulf War syndrome is another example. I mean, this is, that's an interesting area, which I think from memory, Garth Nicholson uh, from the US did a lot of work in. And... Um, sick building syndrome, uh, siliconosis, and, and one that's come my way where um, it's actually now been uh, diagnosed by an immunologist in this patient's care where this patient had some pelvic mesh put in something like 10 years ago to address a sort of prolapsed bowel and soon after basically started developing MS symptoms. And it's just become a nightmare since then. So from you know, MS, osteoarthritis, there's a sort of seronegative arthritis that they, they developed, you know, uh, temporomandibular joint dysfunction, constant issues with their immune system. So reduced white cell count, reduced neutrophils, and being in a constant T helper two dominant state. She hadn't even mentioned to me that she had actually had this pelvic mesh in, in, in situ, right? And it was only when um, she saw her immunologist, I think a couple of months back, that he had been to a seminar or some lecture where this was discussed, and he then explored it further. And it seems to, um, you know, the emergence of all her symptoms basically seems to coincide with, you know, having this mesh put in 
and then experiencing the symptoms soon after. And so now she's she's booked in for to have this mesh removed, which is quite lucky because more often than not, particularly when you know sort of mesh has been in, introduced into the body, depending on where it's been introduced, it can be impossible to remove because um, becomes part of your body basically. And so I found this really quite interesting because it's an example of how essentially your environment can trigger an autoimmune response. You then start to think beyond that and think, okay, well, what about all these other things that we're doing to our bodies, you know, introducing foreign foreign bodies into our, into our body? How's our body responding to that? I mean, as I said at the very start of today, my feeling is that, you know, the body tries to do the best by us, right, in terms of perhaps producing antibodies which are there to, to serve us purposefully. But through this process of molecular mimicry, the body can get confused and sort of say, no, I don't like this. And then it starts to attack itself. And you sort of wonder how many conditions that we treat on a regular basis has this sort of underlying process that underpins it. And I think we're going to hear a lot more about this in, in times to come. So I guess really as clinicians, we need to um, think about asking more questions around the person's environment, don't we? Because, I mean, you've given some great examples about things that are introduced into our bodies, but there are so many environmental toxins that we could potentially be exposed to that maybe could be triggering this response as well. We could spend half a day talking about glyphosate, for example. And, and, and the potential of glyphosate. I mean, if you look at researchers like Dr. Stephanie Seneff, who's, been, who's, done, who's basically dedicated her life to this area and who in the early days no one was listening to, but everyone now seems to be listening to her. I mean, we, we, do, we do not know the half of it of potentially what compounds such as glyphosate um, could be driving within our bodies. And in the, in, specifically within, in the case of glyphosate, its impact on the biodiversity of your gut micro of the of the gut microbiome, which originally was thought did not impact the human body in any way, but which now, in in retrospect, we know that it can have a significant impact. And so, I think you know the the, the message there, from, from my perspective, is to try to keep things as simple as possible, um, and try to keep things as clean as possible. So, you know, this notion of encouraging organic foods, for example you know, it makes an enormous amount of sense. But we need to go further because, I mean, I think, you know, there's, in the European Union, my, under, my understanding is that glyphosate is illegal to be used, right? So, you know, why is it in Australia that we think that it's acceptable to, to have glyphosate as widespread as it is within the food supply, particularly within grains? So it's, it, it, it's complex and I know, you know, the solutions aren't necessarily easy, but it's something that we just can't sweep under the carpet anymore. We really have to, you know, be, be cognizant of the fact that what we're exposing ourselves to within the environment is having an impact on our physiology. And it's getting worse and worse over time as, as life becomes more and more complex. And do you think it's enough for people to to eat well, avoid um, as much, uh, you know, of the environmental exposures as they possibly can, but, you know, through their personal care products, the filter that they choose for their water, the um, trying not to have, you know, food in plastics, you know, eat a balanced diet, do exercise, get out into nature, make sure their detoxification organs are working adequately. Is that enough for us to generally avoid 
any kind of you know health issues as a result of exposure? I would have to say absolutely. But the one thing that has to be on top of the agenda in order to facilitate all of those things to do their thing is to ensure that people uh, from a mental emotional point of view are in a good place. I mean, the, the number of times that I, again, as part of my assessment, that I find that people have had traumas, for example, that have not really been resolved and which I believe have actually been, it's been a component of driving their pathology is mind-blowing. And so, I mean, this is, I know it's sort of, we're now sort of um, moving away from the topic, but as far as I'm concerned, that what we need is, um, particularly in terms of counselling or psychological services, um, greater access to services that help address subconscious mental emotional states. This is now starting to happen within the psychology and psychiatric field. So, for example, more and more patients that I'm seeing, and, and I've been encouraging this for quite a long time, um, to basically seek out professionals that do provide these modalities, such as things like EMDR, you know, eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. I've had patients that have seen psychologists and psychiatrists that actually practice this modality within their practices. And it's been an outstanding success in being able to address those deep-seated subconscious mental emotional conditions that cognitive behavioral therapy does not seem to be able to touch. Now, when you look at the the majority of services that are available, and, and you know, we all agree that we, we, want, we want these services available to support people, right? But we also want to make sure that these services are actually generating favorable outcomes. I mean, you know, I'm a bit overhearing people having seen a, a psychologist for 10 years, and they're not really any much better, right? So, you know, I think, you know, we need to, we need to you know, be open enough to explore and potentially fund, you know, research in these areas modalities that can really help get to the core crux of the issue in some people. And, you know, kids that I've seen where, for example, bullying has had such a devastating effect on their health and which they continue to carry for years and decades ahead. We underestimate the physiological impact of, of emotional states, mental emotional states that have not been successfully addressed. And I think for all that other stuff to work, you know, clean air, clean water, good food, all that sort of stuff, I would have to say, and I'm not, and, and, and again, you know, it's, it's outside my scope of practice, but, um, you know, emotional well-being is right up there, number one. I have children that are in an absolutely perfect place from an, a mental emotional point of view, and they seem to get away with murder in terms of their diet and uh, lifestyle and all that sort of stuff. So we need to think, we need to think laterally and we also need to be careful that we that we also then don't become overly obsessive about you know if we there are times that we don't have organic food that it's we start to catastrophize. So it's it's a balancing act. And a final word on sensitivities. What I tend to find is um, I'll often look for people that have a genuine histamine sensitivity, for example, because of the symptoms that they have. And you know more often than not when you then explore their diet, you know, they are including, you know, a, a lot of histamine-rich foods in their diet. Now, again, how do you address that? Well, my approach is, you know, thinking, you know, of the liver as being a, a bathtub within which histamine can accumulate. Um, if the body's not processing that histamine properly or if there's a microbiome problem within, within the bowel that's affecting um, the level of DAO enzymes, et cetera, then logic tells me that in the short term, I've got to reduce the load. 
So let me reduce the histamine load through in terms of what they're obtaining um, orally, and and but then start to address what the some of the potential underlying other drivers are. The same thing with um, IBS, you know, where you know with within IBS, you know, the implementation of a low FODMAP diet it's fairly routine, and so I think that's appropriate short term, you know, six to eight weeks, and then that gives you time over that time to then really address some of the underlying drivers. The same thing with salicylate sensitivity that we'll, we'll see with kids with hyperactivity and eczema. Often salicylates are really a significant issue and often made worse by regimes that should be, in fact, optimizing their health. So, you know, people who, uh, or parents that follow a more of a GAPS diet, you know, more fermentation, uh, ferment, uh, a sort of more fermentative, a fermentation-based diet, which we know can be incredibly healthy and, and helpful but not with someone that has, um, for example, a really serious histamine sensitivity because you're just making it worse. So, you know, this, you know, it comes back to the point that, that, that I've, always, I've always tried to make that the intervention must be individually tailored and strategic, you know, and, and what's, you know, one man's meat can be really another man's poison. And we just need to, you know, intervene in a way that addresses the issue but then gets the person back to, you know, eating as normally as possible, right? And with as, as wide a variety as possible. Respected Sydney naturopath Emma Sutherland joins us again for her final case study. This time, a nine-year-old girl with stomach cramps, nausea and lack of appetite. So she wasn't wanting to eat because she felt nauseous and they had been to see a few different people and she'd been diagnosed with post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome and been given some medication for esophagitis. So uh, it was a PPI. So the, the parents wanted something more holistic and they thought there was more at play here. And so what I did with her is she'd already had some bloods done and in her bloods, her antigladin IgG was elevated. So I asked them to remove gluten out of her diet. In her history, when she was seven years old, she had a severe rotavirus. So she ended up in hospital with that. And then at eight years of age, so a year later, she had tonsillitis and was given antibiotics for that. So when we look at the disrupting factors that impacted this little girl, you've got the rotavirus, the antibiotics, and then the gluten sensitivity. And I wonder, you know, from my perspective, I think, well, the rotavirus and the antibiotics probably impacted her gut integrity. And is that when the gluten sensitivity was triggered uh, because the father also saw me and the father doesn't uh, do very well on gluten. But the first thing I did obviously was say, hey, can we just pull the gluten out? You know, there was a good study in 2019 on you know, working out, well, what's, what's sort of driving that non-celiac gluten sensitivity? And, and it tends to be that a patient will have dysbiosis first and then a gut barrier dysfunction second and then the gluten sensitivity. So I definitely saw that in this little girl's case. So I told them to please stop having gluten. I put her on some digestive enzymes 
and a combination of probiotics and also as some glutamine zinc combination to work on that intestinal permeability to really help support that enterocyte proliferation and survival. So what we saw with her, it did take four months, um, but each time I saw her, I saw her monthly, but each time I saw her, she was getting less and less symptomatic. Um, and at the end of the four months, you know, she really did not have any nausea. She did not have any stomach pains and her appetite was back. And you know, one of the things I did explain to the parents is, you know, I can I can absolutely work in any way you want, but I'd really like to avoid PPIs with your daughter if we can. So PPIs um, are meant to be that sort of four to six week time frame for a medication, but you know, patients are often left on them longer. And with this little girl, I was thinking, well, you know. I, She's at risk then for B12 deficiency, magnesium deficiency, you know, SIBO later on. So there was all these reasons why I wanted to get in there and do some really good gut work and prevent her from having to use those PPIs if she didn't really need them. So it made me extremely happy to see that this little girl um, got better and she wrote me the most beautiful letter. It was so sweet. Um, so, yeah, but sometimes, once again, uh, it is about looking at what we can do in a simple way. I did actually do, um, at the end of her treatment, the parents wanted to know whether she should have gluten or not. So we just did um, a fecal testing for transglutaminase IgA and a couple of other um, stool markers, and they all came back, you know, perfectly within range. So um, I said to them, you know, please go and try gluten, do a trial of it and see how she goes. And she's able to have some, um, which is really great news. I mean, if, if people don't need to avoid a food, then that's, that's a great thing. Since Emma works so closely with families, I asked her how she encourages dietary change in kids. First of all, make it as fun as you can. So one of my key values in life is fun. And I think when you're working uh, with families, you've got to make it as engaging and fun process as possible. Um, the first thing to do is to really listen and then listen and then listen again because often these families uh, come to you feeling like they're not being heard. So our role is so important to listen, to ask questions like, you know, what are you most concerned about? And just be really reassuring and positive with them and validate their experience. So I find that that in itself can be very healing for the parents specifically. But make sure you talk to the child directly, like get down on the floor with them. Like in my room, We've got a playroom, um, but in my room, I have a basket of blocks and I have lots of little toys and I get them engaged with those things because just observation alone is so powerful when you're working with children. So just observing, you know, how they go when they're building something with blocks or when they're playing with, you know, whatever it might be, it gives you a lot of insights into them. And then find out what your levers are for compliance. So if you know, if you're working with like that little boy, the eczema case, if you're working with a little boy, you've got to find out like what does he want? What does he aspire to? So does he love running? Does he want love jumping? Like what do they love doing? And then explain to that child 
how what you're working on with them is going to help them jump higher, run faster, you know, whatever it is they want to do. So really engage the child in that process and explain what you're doing to the child. Explain to them about gut health and good bugs and bad bugs and all of those things because it's never too young to start that that education piece. But, you know, working with the parents, um, make sure that you tell them to email you if they've got any questions because often they will forget to ask you things that, you know, they can, you know, yeah, they just need that extra level of support. So when you're working with families, expect to get emails, expect to be contacted outside of appointments because they will need that level of care. Um, and like we've got a patient handout that specifically gives so many um, options for how to give supplements to your child. There's no point giving a parent, you know, two or three supplements and just saying, oh, there you go, that's done. You have to very explicitly and clearly explain how they are going to get that supplement into their child. There's so many joys in working with families because kids tend to bounce back a lot quicker than adults and you get really great results in reasonably short timeframes with kids because they are less complex. So um, it is very joyful, but you have to be ready to have a high level of care and be available. In the next episode of Between Clinical Minds, we brave the topic of childhood vaccinations to try to provide a guide on how to traverse the issue with parents. We speak to US paediatrician, Dr. Elizabeth Mumper, naturopath, Amanda Howe, and a parent who has navigated this space with his own children. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept.